Well, good morning, Peachtree. It is glorious to be with you, and it's a great privilege for us to get to gather in the garden of God's word to be able to pick the bouquet of flowers for us to present and to be able to share as a congregation and celebrate. So I hope that you are doing well and uh, that that life is starting to return to some semblance of normal within the confines of what that is. I know that for me in particular, like my family is here for the first time uh, in over a year. So getting to see my sister and her husband and my mom and my dad to get to embrace them this weekend and to begin the process of reuniting after a long time of being apart. We know we long for the great reunion of what is going to happen in the restoration of all things. And so we're patient and we wait and we long for those moments when we can be together. We also know that we have one fewer IP address watching us from Texas because my parents are here. And so I'm sure it's throwing off all of our statistics. Hey, I wanna begin today by telling you a story of uh, where I went to graduate school and Um, I was in my second year of graduate school, and there was a beautiful young woman uh, who was there and who was in the next class that was upcoming, and we met when she was just moving her stuff into her dorm room, and I noticed when she was moving in that she had a guitar under one arm and she had a, a box of running shoes under her other, and so we struck up a conversation about running and that we were both runners, and I told her, I said, well, you know, if you ever want, I'll be glad to show you some of the the beautiful places to run. Now, what you need to know about Princeton, New Jersey is that it is magnificent and magical at its very best in the fall. So this is what the Princeton University campus looks like in the fall. And there are, there are some secret, great, beautiful running passages and paths that are around the campus. I wanna show you my absolute favorite. This picture looks like it's made up. It's so beautiful, it's magical. You can see the little path that's along the right side there of Lake Carnegie and the towpath uh, that was carved um, out through that space. It's just a great place to be able to run in the wonder and the majesty of God's creation. And this is how this, young woman and I got to know one another and we, uh, we started to be able to spend time together. After about a month of running together and hanging out, there came this moment in one of our runs where we were done, we were walking now back to the campus and she looked at me very directly and she said, I just wanna know what is exactly that we're doing here? And I kind of stopped at kind of the abrupt nature of the way that she was asking the question, because I knew, I knew this was one of those put up or shut up moments. Uh, There's a term that was developed about this time for what we were about to do, about to have a conversation. It was a DTR. It was a define the relationship kind of moment and conversation. I knew from what she was saying to me is that I'm in one place. Are you in that same place as well? Because if you're not going to ask me out, I'm going to move on. Well, this very direct, beautiful, wonderful young lady uh, has been my wife for over two decades. That was how the relationship of Kelly and my kind of dating began. And uh, so I asked her on a date, she said yes, and she's regretted it now for a long, long time. Well, hey, the reason I bring this up is, is that there are moments, Kyle Eidemann says, where we need a spiritual DTR. We need a spiritual kind of moment of defining the relationship. We need that moment of clarification of what is exactly that we are doing here. 
And that type of conversation is how are we doing in our relationship with God? The way that Kyle Eidemann talks about it is he says, are you a fan of Jesus or are you a follower of Jesus? Are you an enthusiastic admirer of Jesus or are you more of a devoted disciple of Jesus? Well, we find that depending on where we are in a relationship with God, we know that he wants that to be built of what it really means to follow him. That's the primary invitation of Jesus, to follow me. What does it mean to follow him? And where are you in that relationship with him? Well, we're in the midst of a series of messages on the Gospel of John, and we're talking about the life-giving belief that is available to us in an encounter and experience and relationship with Christ, and that that relationship changes us, that we are no longer cynical, we're no longer empty or religious, we're no longer ashamed, no longer paralyzed, no longer hungry, condemned, blind, hopeless, no longer lost, and today, we are no longer holding back. I want you to see a beautiful passage from John chapter 12, starting in the first verse. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Bethany means uh, house of the poor, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here was a dinner given in Jesus's honor. It's a celebration banquet. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took out a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it over Jesus' feet, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objective, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And then a few verses later, Jesus says in that same chapter, the hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must what? Must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. And my Father will honor the one who serves me. You know, this is a fantastic passage that falls right on the heels of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So this is a a banquet in Jesus' honor for what has happened. Well, Mary plays a central role in this passage. And to be honest, when you're reading the Gospels, it's easy to get confused. What Mary exactly are we talking about here is a very common name. There's three main Marys in the gospel. There's Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's Mary of Magdala, which is a town that was located alongside the Sea of Galilee. And then there's Mary of Bethany. Bethany was a town just outside of Jerusalem, just to the east, a little bit south of the Mount of Olives. 
The Mary that we're talking about in this story is Mary of Bethany. Sometimes when we read a story, we don't exactly know which Mary it is. We can only give our best guess as to which one. But we know because of where this story is located and because it was just on the heels of the raising of the Lazarus story. Here's one of the interesting things about Mary of Bethany. In the three times that we see her, she is always found without fail at the feet of Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, there's the famous encounter of Mary and Martha, and you remember the conflict and the story, and Martha serving, and Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, learning from him as a disciple. In John chapter 11, there is this fantastic detail that when Mary finally meets Jesus along the road in the midst of her grief, she falls at Jesus' feet. And then in today's story, once again, she will be at the feet of Jesus. Now you understand this is very intentional symbolism as well as reality in history. To sit at the feet of a rabbi was to be his disciple. Mary, according to the imagery of the New Testament, is in a role of discipleship of Jesus. And this would have been absolutely shocking in the male-dominated world of Judaism and in the Middle East. That Mary is at Jesus' feet, learning, weeping, and anointing. Now, I admit, this is kind of a strange story. It's a story that, if we're reading it right, even makes us a little bit uncomfortable because it feels so personal, so intimate. Let me give you a little bit of background that will help you to understand this story. So to do that, I need to take you to a beautiful place. I need to take you to this place, the foothills of the Himalayas. In the foothills of the Himalayas, there is something that grew there, still grows there. It's known as the spikenard plant. This plant was a particular um, plant that could be crushed and cultivated into an oil that was very exotic and very expensive. It had a very distinct aroma or kind of perfume. It would have been very different from a common oil that they would have used for all other common purposes. You know, they would have used oil from uh, something that grows very readily in the Middle East, uh, in Jerusalem and in the different areas, the, the olive fruit produced olive oil that they would use for their cooking, for their lamps, for cleaning, or for ritual. You used the spikenard plant, that kind of oil, for a very reserved and specific purpose. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you biblically. The spikenard word appears, pure nard, it, it, it appears five times in the New Testament or in the Bible itself. The three times of the, of the five are in the Old Testament, and all three of those occur in the uh, kind of epic love poem that is the Song of Solomon. The first appearance of it in the Bible appears here, chapter one, verse 12. While the king, King Solomon, was at his table, my perfume, my spikenard, spread its fragrance. 
So you need to picture this moment. So, so the, you're seeing a, a banquet feast before a king, and there are all kinds of different lavish foods and aromas that arise from the people gathered there as well as all the different spices and the different ways that you could think of all the food preparation that took place there. And in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all of that, there is this one smell, this one distinct aroma that arises above all of that at the table. It was this aroma. Why would it stick out? Yes, because of its expense. Yes, because it was exotic. Yes, because it was rare. But yes, because of its specific purpose, it was the aroma of true love. And so the way that this was used in that moment in time is that it was the kind of thing that would be offered in small amounts, if it could be afforded, it was offered in order to be a part of the wedding ritual. It may have even been a part of the dowry negotiation that the woman in part of the preparation for marriage would anoint the head of her true love with just a little bit of this incredible perfume. That is what is happening in this passage. Jesus is being marked by the true love of another. And in doing so, one of the things that you need to realize is that Mary was putting his love, her obedience to him, above all other loves in her life. And so what, is the, what does this really mean? What does this really matter then at this point? The primary command of the Bible is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. That is what we are called to do. We're to love him above all others, to put him first as supreme, as the greatest, to seek him first above all others. And in doing so, we have to find ourselves in the story. Are we like Martha, who is so busy doing the tasks that she's working for Jesus, but she isn't really loving him? Are we like Judas Iscariot? Do we have all of our own desires and our own agendas, which are more important to us than Jesus? Are we going to be like Peter later, who's not called out for in the story, but later who will even deny that he knew Jesus when things get hard? The portrait of a true disciple in this story is Mary of Bethany, a woman from a poor town who takes the most extravagant an expensive thing that she has, and she pours it out upon Jesus. Let's take a brief glance at how she shows us what a true follower of Jesus looks like. Three things. It takes abandoning your pride. It takes relying on his death. And it takes giving him your all. First, abandon your pride. Notice the detail here in the text when she pours out the spike nard on Jesus' feet, and then she does what? She wipes her feet with her hair. I'm going to show you a piece of art of what that intimacy might have looked like. It would have been shocking for a woman in that society to let down her hair and 
to show it in public like this. And an act of love and obedience and serving. She pours it out and she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. In doing so, she would have offended, as you can tell from the murmuring, all the people around her. But here's what's amazing. She doesn't care about what they think. She only cares about what Jesus thinks. She lets go of all pretense. She lets go of all of her pride. I have a friend who walked away from the faith. And it wasn't so much that it wasn't true anymore for him. It was that he no longer saw the Christian faith as being sophisticated enough for him. His great impediment to faith was his pride. I know a lot of people who hold back from true faith in Jesus. They hold back because they want to make sure that they preserve enough of their dignity and their pride. A true follower of Jesus doesn't worry about what other people think, even what they think, above what Jesus thinks. When you realize that he owes you nothing, then maybe you're willing to abandon all of that in worship and honor and praise of him. So let me ask this question. Have you ever let down your hair for Jesus? Have you ever just been your raw, unvarnished self before him at his feet? The first step to true discipleship is abandoning your pride. The second step in discipleship, according to Mary of Bethany, is to rely on his death. To rely on his death. Notice in the passage here in John chapter 12, Jesus tells him to leave her alone. And he gives the motive of what she's doing here. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. The mixture of burial imagery with that of the marriage imagery. And then Jesus says in response to this passage in John chapter 12, verse 24, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus' death was no ordinary death. It was a sacrificial death. And that that sacrificial death was going to lead to new freedom and to new life. Jesus understood this. Mary understood this. No one else did. Back in 2017, our family got to journey over to the other side of the pond, as they say, and went to France and England. And one of our favorite places that we got to visit was along the beaches of Normandy. Along the coast where you recognize not only its beauty, but the historical significance of the invasion of Normandy during World War II for D-Day. It was an incredible privilege to walk along the shoreline and also to attend the American Cemetery where you see all of those gleaming white crosses shining, remembering those who had died. While we were taking the tour, we noticed along the wall 
we noticed that there was one particular name that looked different from all the other names. That particular name stuck out and the tour guide shared with us why. That when a family comes to visit their loved one, they go down to the beach, they grab handfuls of wet sand, they take it up to the name of their loved one, and they wipe it across the name so you can see how the name stuck out. They went down to the place of the sacrifice and brought it to the place of memory. I know that for me, and I suspect for my whole family, seeing that was worth the whole trip. Getting to recognize that the freedom that we have, the life that we enjoy, the privileges that we are afforded, are in part because of the death, the sacrifice, the gift of another. When you realize that God doesn't owe you anything, and then you discover, as Tim Keller says, that he has given you everything, at that intersection, that, that is what we truly understand discipleship. And so first you abandon your pride, and then you rely on his death. And then finally, you give him your all. I love the vivid imagery of the text here, that in John chapter 12, we get to discover what it's like for her to take her alabaster jar and to break it. This jar is an example of what that heirloom might have been like. And she takes it and she cracks it. We learn that detail in Mark's account of the same passage. She breaks it open and it says it like this. The alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard, that's spike nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. What we discover from these two stories together is that she pours the perfume on his head, anointing him as king. Then she rubs it into his feet in serving him as her master, as her lord. She took her family heirloom, her, her dowry, maybe the most valuable thing that her family owned in a poor place, and she broke it and poured it out on Jesus. There was no turning back, no turning back. We've been reading a book together as a congregation on the Gospel of John. We handed it out at Christmas. Some we've even mailed out to you who have let us know that you kind of want to be a part of the Peachtree family. We just sent it to you as a gift. It's the book, You're Never Alone. And in a chapter on the cross, Max Lucado tells the story of this young woman. Her name is Kayla. Kayla had a remarkable gift as a runner. If you saw her run, you would be absolutely amazed by how this tiny, wonderful, compact burst of energy could run so fast. She ran so fast that she was recruited to 
be able to go to college and to run in college. And um, at one point, she was 21st in the country in her bracket in terms of her speed, her time. But when she was 15 years old, they discovered something about Kayla that was both shocking and sad. They discovered that she had a form of MS, multiple sclerosis. And that one of the impacts of that is that when her body began to heat up, that she would lose the feelings in her legs. She would lose all sensitivity below her waist. She wanted to continue to run. She didn't know how she would do it anymore. Ironically, she could still run. It was just that she would lose the feeling and she wouldn't know how to stop. But her coach said this. Her coach said, you do the running, I'll do the catching. And so her coach waits at the finish line for Kayla. And when she gets to that finish line, she's still running full tilt. She has no ability to stop. She might even be screaming, my legs, my legs, I can't feel my legs. And her coach catches her in a harsh and yet beautiful collision. He takes her, sets her down with ice cooling off so that she can begin to heal. Kayla's remarkable because in the face of adversity, she gives it all. She doesn't hold back. She does this because she can trust that while she does the running, there's someone who does the catching. You're running your race. And in order to run that race well, you've got to abandon your pride. You've got to know that there is someone who has gone before you and paid the price. And then in light of that, in grateful and joyful love, we give back our all. We run our race. And there is someone who at the end will catch you. Mary knew this about Jesus. She anticipated it. She showed it. She demonstrated it. In a shocking fashion, she shows us what it means to truly follow. I'm going to ask you as your pastor, what is it exactly that we are doing here? I want to give you that same question, that same confrontation that my girlfriend, soon-to-be wife, gave to me. Maybe you need a little spiritual DTR. Are you a fan of Jesus or are you a follower? Are you more like Judas? Are you more like Martha? Are you more like Peter? Or are you like Mary? That you've surrendered your pride. You've honored his death. And you'll now give him your all. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul, my life, my all. He'll catch you. So run hard. Let's pray. Thank you, God. Your life was described as poured out for our sake, for our sins, for our brokenness, for injustice, 
for the fractured nature of our world and our own hearts. Forgive us, God, for not being in right relationship with you. Some of us hold back because we want to be in control. We have a fear of commitment. Our pride is getting in the way. Some of us hold back, God, because we rely on our own work as opposed to your sacrifice. Someone's holding back, God, because they think they can't run anymore. They can't keep going. God, whatever it is that we need to hear, whatever it is that we need to do, to be more like Mary, to offer to you our very best and to follow you as one that we love. So help us to love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, all of our mind, to break the jar and to pour it out before you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.